0: Well, wise people learn from their mistakes. Is that correct? It is, is it not? Wise people learn from their mistakes. People who are wiser still learn from the mistakes of others. It's good to learn from my own mistakes. Like don't touch the mic again. <laughs> and it's it's good to learn from it's better to learn from the mistakes. Of others so we don't go through that process and today we're going to look at some some people who've made some mistakes in Scripture and we're going to learn from them we're going to benefit from what Scripture shares about their story I want us to turn uh, first of all to Mark chapter 10 I'm going to read uh, a few verses there Mark chapter 10 and uh, the title of the, the address this morning is, What's in it for me? What's in it for me? I want, want, want us to take inventory today. Why am I serving Jesus? What's my motivation? What's my understanding? Am I serving Jesus just to escape the flames of hell? Am I serving Jesus because, well, it seems to be just a better life? What's in it for me? Why am I serving Jesus? And we're going to look here in the 10th chapter of Mark about two men who had an idea of why they were following Jesus and Jesus had to adjust their thinking. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 35, and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do uh, for us whatever we ask of you. Sounds a little presumptuous, sounds a little foreboding. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Oh, that's scary, isn't it? We are able. Because they really don't know what they're asking, do they? And they're thinking, they're, they want to serve Jesus, they're following Jesus, and part of that includes when Jesus' earthly realm, they are expecting, at this point it looks like they are expecting, a, a Messiah who is like David, who will exercise military power and authority and skill and liberate them from the Romans and set up the kingdom of Israel. They are thinking of an earthly kingdom that is about to come and they want entitlement. They want privilege because they have followed Jesus all this time and they want this honor. And this culture they're in, by the way, is an honor-shame culture. It makes sense to them. The cup I drink, verse 39, you shall drink and and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant toward James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whosoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And now those who are hearing the Gospel of Mark in the era in which it was written, they know the addition to this story. That James, the brother of John, probably older than John, this follower of Jesus actually did drink the cup and experience the baptism of martyrdom. Approximately 10 years after Jesus said this to James and John, in A.D. 44... Herod Agrippa I killed, executed this James that we read about here because of his Christian faith. If you want to read the story, there's more to that story in Acts chapter 12, and this is where they were planning to kill Simon Peter as well, but the church prayed and the angel appeared and he was released from prison. What they expected and what they received at least in this life was different. There was, and we know, an eternal reward that's different. What's in it for me? Why are you? Little inventory today. Let's do a little Holy Spirit introspection. allow the Holy Spirit to talk to us. What's in it for me? How shall we follow Jesus? How shall we serve God? Why am I following Jesus? What's in it for me? When we have that kind of attitude, it's very uh, detrimental, is it not? If you want to kill a marriage, anybody want to kill a marriage? No. If you want to kill a marriage, be one of the partners who says and lives out, what's in it for me? Can I get a witness? I'm getting some witnesses out here, all right. What's in it for me? I married you because of me. Mm. That's not good. This is one of those mm-hmm sermons, all right? You can do that whenever you're ready. hmm hmm What's in it for me? Well, let's look at some examples Of people who did not fully uh, adhere to the directives that God had given them. And I'm just going to walk us through some passages. I'll call out the chapter. Uh, You can type that chapter in your phone or you can write down the chapter. You may um, want to just, you, you may have a great memory and you can just recall it. And I will walk us through these stories. I love the Bible, I love the stories. The first story we want to look at, surprisingly, comes from Leviticus. We don't talk a lot about stories in Leviticus, primarily because there are not a lot of stories in Leviticus. But in Leviticus chapter 10, we meet two men, Nadav and Avihu. Nadav and Avihu are the oldest sons of Aaron. And Moses has been instructing Aaron and his sons on the arrangement and the organization and the preparation and the way to execute the sacrifices and the various sacrifices in a way that honors God and according to God's specific directions. However, Navadav and Avihu offer, according to the text, strange fire. That is, they didn't follow what God had just told them to do. And God in his holiness had to maintain his standard. And fire came out and consumed those two men. What's interesting here as well, and this is what I've read this before years ago, it it struck me that, and I remember it to this day, Aaron, the father of these two young men, was not allowed to leave the holy area And he was not allowed to grieve over the death of his sons. Aaron had been identified as God's priest. In this case, the high priest, as this is installing and coming about. And he was to identify not only with the people, but he was God's representative. And as God's representative, he was not even allowed to support his sons and his family in this time of grief because of his alliance with God. Fascinating passage, isn't it? Apparently, what Nadav and Avihu did was egregious in God's sight. They were to represent him before the people. In their service, they were to honor God. In their service, they were to please God and follow the directions that God gave. Somehow, they felt entitled to do it their way. They felt the privilege of serving God in adherence with their pattern, their idea. In that same chapter, God will direct Aaron not to drink wine Nor the other priests to drink wine as they do their sacrificial duties in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. Perhaps that's what happened to Nadav and Abihu. We don't know that for sure. But they were serving as it suited him. So, in our service, what's in it for me? In my service, who am I serving? Am I serving myself? Am I looking at the way I do it? Or am I paying attention to the word of, word of God and to the working of the Spirit? Am I aligning myself with truth? Or am I doing it my way? And we'll see more of this later. We have, I have a quote here from a guy named Derek Tidball, and he says, Scripture speaks with a united voice. The closer one is to God, the more careful one must be about his holiness, that's God's holiness, and honor. The greater the privileges one has received, the more careful one must be to fulfill one's responsibilities. This is sobering, is it not? This is is a call to think carefully about ourselves, our walk, and the way that we serve God. Am I strictly in a nonchalant way going about the Lord's business, or am I paying attention to what God has said? This is why scripture is so important to the church and to the life of the church at an individual level and a corporate level. We need God's instruction because we can veer from what God wants and the, and the results can be not only disastrous for us but also for others. I want to direct our attention uh, to the book of Judges, the story of Micah. Judges chapter 17. Micah um, And his mother are familiar with Yahweh. Yahweh, as you know, is the the name of the God of Israel. That is the personal name of, of the God of Israel. And Micah's name even contains an element of Yahweh in his name. His name means who is like Yahweh. And Micah has broken, as we start to read Judges chapter 17, Micah has broken so many commandments, he's broken at least three. First of all, he steals money from his mother. Never a good idea. I remember stealing some money from my grandfather once. He had some coins on a desk and I grabbed it and I ran down the street to the store and bought some candy. Convicts me to this day. But Micah stole a lot of money from his mother so he, he was guilty of stealing. And in stealing from his mother, he was guilty of dishonoring his mother. He did not honor his mother. Now his mother didn't know that Micah took the money. And so she placed a curse on the one who stole it. Behold, and lo, Micah's ears, he hears... What his mother has said, and he confesses that he stole the money. Micah's mother, not fully understanding the things of God, thinks that, well, okay, since I put a curse on the thief, now I'm going to bless my sons to to cancel the curse. Turn them him with me and say, cancel the curse. Cancel the curse. Thank you for both of you who did that. Cancel the curse. And so she says, I tell you what I'm going to do, son. I'm going to take this stolen money, and I'm going to give it to Yahweh to make an idol. You see, what we have here is syncretism. Micah and his mother knew enough about God to talk the talk, but in practice, they worshiped Yahweh in a manner that was alien to God's directives. And so Micah and his mother, they create an image, and Micah sets up this shrine with this image in his house, dedicated to Yahweh. You see the incongruity there. Idols, Yahweh. They don't go together. And then Micah goes ahead and he says, I need a priest. So he takes his oldest son and declares that he is the priest to offer the appropriate activities for this idol and for their worship of Yahweh. Micah is not a Levite. Perchance, a Levite comes along and Micah says, oh my goodness. And if you read the story carefully, we learn that this Levite who comes along is an opportunist. He's not in the Levi ministry or the Levi business to serve God, you read the text carefully, this, this Levite is really responding to the question, what's in it for me, in a way that is wrong? So Micah promises, him, said, hey, stay here. And this young man, he says, you'll be like a father to me. And this book is full of irony. The book of Judges is replete with irony. And this is so ironic. You'll be like a father to me, son and you'll be you'll be our priest. So this Levite says, "Yeah, I'll take the clothing that you promised, the housing allowance. I'll take the silver that you're giving me and I will be your priest." Then you know what? And this is the clincher. Micah says, "And now I know" And now I know that God will prosper me or God will bless me because I have a Levite as a priest. Parentheses to execute my cultic activity with Yahweh and the idol. If you read the rest of the story, you'll find out, and we won't take time to go into this later, but this same priest and this same idolatry was then transferred to Dan that set up a, a, a several hundred year place of alternate worship for the Israelites. This little sin of Micah was magnified to impact and, and contaminate an entire nation. What started out as an individual lack of respect for God and following of God's teaching multiplied and hurt Thousands and thousands of people. Now I know God will bless me. It makes me take pause and think to myself Am I walking in a way that God is pleasing to God? I know my salvation is secure. I know Jesus has died for me and rose again, and I I have committed my life to Jesus. But sometimes it's just healthy to pause and allow the Holy Spirit to say, What are my motives? Am I following Scripture? What's in it for me, Jesus? Am I really asking that question in such a way and answering it correctly so that when I say, what's in it for me, I'm giving the answer that you want to hear? I don't want to be like Micah and have this self-assurance that's totally wrong. Now I know, I know that God will bless me. Micah was standing in the place of judgment when he thought he was standing in the place of blessing. The sad commentary here is that, and this goes throughout the book of Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own thinking. And that that theme is repeated. That's what we have here. I want to address another, uh, take us to another account, and this is Numbers chapter 20. And the main idea here is don't strike the rock. This is the account of Moses, and he's in a a very tough position. He's in a leadership role, and the people he's leading are uh, tired, they're weary, they're frustrated, and they're thirsty. And they're in a very arid climate. And as you you read this account in Numbers chapter 20, So people are complaining, and oh, are how they are complaining, and honestly, I sympathize with them i, I don't like to be thirsty, i don 't like to be tired there, you know is anybody and maybe you are far more holy than I am, but when I get tired, I get a little crabby don't, shh, sweetheart, don't say anything, no so I mean. I am not, you know, I'm not, I'm not really bashing these people. I I understand. But honestly, if I were Moses in that situation, I I would feel extremely frustrated. And, And so God says to Moses, okay, they're hungry. And Moses calls them rebels. And he says, and God tells Moses, okay, take the rod, go to this rock and speak to it. And I'll provide the water. Now, somehow, in this moment, Moses' anger got the best of him. Instead of just speaking to the rock, he took the rod and hit the rock twice. And the Lord honored that, and water came forth, and the people drank and lived. But God said to Moses, You will honor me before the people, and you did not. I am holy, and you will honor me before the people. As a result, you will not make it into the promised land. Now, when I I read that story, I feel like, man, that's awfully hard. Anybody ever feel that way when you read that story? That seems so unfair. I mean, good grief. Excuse me. I didn't mean to say that bad word in front of you. But uh, he, he went through this, and he, he's gone through all this, you know, t- all the miracles in Egypt and all of that's been involved and the spiritual warfare and all the battling. And, and, and of course, he's, he's, he's frustrated. Really, Lord, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. But God said, I will be honored. I am holy. And that's the deal. Are we entitled to allow anger to rule. We are not. Anger is a very dangerous emotion. If we go back to Genesis chapter 4, God warned Cain about the anger he was feeling. And he compared it to an animal that was about to crouch and kill. In my service for Jesus, is my attitude right? Do I, am I entitled to be angry at God's people? Many years ago in a faraway land when I was serving as, Susie and I were serving as pastors of this uh, church in central Texas. It was a revitalization project. Loved those people. Really did. Think of them, pray for them still but there was a Monday morning as a pastor I don't know what had happened but I was walking I was uh, near the downtown area we, there was a strip center there and we had a some stuff going on down there uh, at that strip center and, and I was walking and I was kind of under you know the emotion I am so mad at those people and I probably didn't say it quite with that Gentile spirit and you know what Out of the blue, God spoke to me and he said, you do not have the right to be angry with my people. They belong to me. Basically, you are a caretaker, but I am their God. I'm adding now the implications thereof. You do not have the right to be angry with them. And so I... I felt the stern rebuke of the Lord. And that is something that's relevant for all of us. In the climate in which we live, there are a lot of things going on in our culture, in our country, and our world. And we are certainly allowed to and, in, and, and can have disagreements with our brothers and sisters. We can have differences of opinion, but we are not allowed For anger to manifest its potential in our hearts, in our relationships. Anger is something that God wants to help us with. Scripture says what? Be angry and sin not. That's okay. It's okay to be angry. You're going to be angry. But let's allow the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus to help us temper that so it's God honoring and we're not assassinating one another with our words and our actions. Are we entitled? Are we entitled? Are we entitled? The final story is uh, about Gideon. And I want you to, uh, if you want, you want to look in chapters uh, 8 of Judges and also in chapter 9. If you read uh, Judges chapter 8 carefully, You'll, you'll see some double speaking going on. In Judges chapter 8, we first see that Gideon is prince-like because he asks the men he's captured, the kings he's captured, he says, uh, and they said they had killed some men. He said, what did they look like? And he said they were like royalty. They were like princes. They were like you. And we can just read past that. But as the story builds, we're going to find out that Gideon felt entitled. Remember the story of Gideon, how God called him. The angel stood there and called him and he was in hiding and, and he needed assurance. And I don't blame him for the task that God asked him to do. He needed assurance. It was incredible what God had asked him to do. We don't realize that. And then God goes to all the trouble, all the trouble to bring Gideon down to the point where he has to realize God has to be the one that does it. God reduces the army to 300 people. When he's fighting thousands. So Gideon exercised faith. And he moved forward. But in this process, Gideon moves from a, a follower of God to a man who feels entitled because of what God has done through him. And so, he, and so the battle is over. And the people come to Gideon and they say, Sir Gideon, uh, we want you... To be our king. Not only you. But let's establish a dynasty. And your son will be king after you. And Gideon says very righteously. I will not be your king. Nor will my sons rule over you. Yahweh is king. So far. He's good. And then he begins to think about this. By the way, again, the book of Judges is replete with irony. And when it says at the end of the book, there was no king in Israel, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, that, that there's more going on there. It's not just talking about a physical king, it's talking about God as king, Yahweh as king. There was no king in Israel because everyone was doing what they wanted to do. So Gideon says, Well, I really can't accept that role. But then, what does he do? Abigail, he he begins to act as if he is king. He takes entitlements. So the first thing he says, well, okay, I won't be king, but I'll take the spoils from the war. Bring all of the gold earrings, you know, the, the, the straps on the camels. And so he gets this pile of money. Gideon becomes rich. Gideon takes that gold and makes an ephod. Have you ever wondered what an ephod is? You read that in the Bible. What is an ephod? It's a garment that the priest would wear. It's like a vest or it can actually come down longer. There's two different different types. But an ephod is a religious object. And so Gideon takes some of this gold and he makes a, a religious item. And it says that through this, Gideon led the people of Israel into idolatry. They took this and they began to worship it. Was Gideon entitled? He thought so. I'll take the gold and the silver and the main part, the king's portion, actually. I'll take the king's portion of the victory. It goes on to say then that Gideon uh, married, had many wives like a king. And it said he had many sons like a king. Seventy, in fact. And this man who said he didn't want to be king named one of them Avimelech, which means in Hebrew, my father is king. And if you read the chapters about Avimelech and the and the horrific things he brought to the people of God and to Shechem, we can begin to see the danger of entitlement. What is it what is in it for me What is in it for me To what are we entitled What's in it for you what's in it for me what's in it for us To what are we entitled The answer my friends Jesus. Why are we following Jesus? Because it's Jesus. Why are we giving our lives in service? Why are we living a life in a culture that does not understand what it means to be a follower of our king? It's Jesus. To what am I entitled? Jesus. What is my goal? Starts with a J. Can you figure it out? Jesus, it's all about our holy king, our example, our pattern, our Lord, our master, our deliverer, the one who saves, the one who heals, the one who rescues. I'd like for the worship, holy worship leaders to come and uh, prepare. All Christians are holy. That's uh, not, not to embarrass them too much. What was Paul's Conclusion in Philippians chapter 3, and, and Pastor has been leading us through an incredible study on the book of Philippians. If we look in Philippians chapter 3, what was Paul's ambition? Paul's goal was what? That I may know him. That I might know Jesus. And in the Greek understanding, excuse me, the Hebrew understanding of the idea of know is to know well is to know intimately. So Paul is not talking merely about a cognitive awareness of Jesus. But he's talking about a powerful, dynamic, living relationship with Jesus, to be known by Jesus, to know Jesus, and to be known by him. It's one thing to say, I know such and such a person. But when that high, powerful, person says, I know me, then I feel important. That's what Paul says. I want to know Jesus, but not just know Jesus. Jesus knows me. We're in relationship. We are together. Jesus is the reason we serve. Jesus is the reason we walk the way we walk. Jesus is the reason we put aside anger. Jesus is the reason we love others and follow him faithfully. It's him. He is our treasure. What's in it for me? If we are believers and we're standing at the doorway of a vault and in that vault there are gold bars And standing in the doorway, we see a pile of pennies. And we rush in and we start gathering the pennies. Would that not be foolish? We would go in if we're smart and wise. And we would start gathering the gold. Jesus is the gold. Jesus is our treasure. It's all about Jesus. It's all about knowing him. It's all about his work of grace in our lives. It's about mercy. It's about kindness. It's about deliverance. It's about transformation. It's about healing. It's about eternal life. It's all about Jesus. Because who Jesus is and and that we get to know him means that, as the Father has said, he has given him everything. We might be paupers on the planet here, but when we know Jesus... Our eternal destiny includes living for Jesus and inheriting everything that Jesus inherits. Only a fool would reject that. What's in it for me? Nothing less than the universe. Why? Because it's Jesus. We're not motivated by that primarily, but it's by that relationship and that love, the love of God in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, when we feel entitled in ways that are inappropriate, help us to remember Jesus. Father, when we start asking the question, what's in it for me? May your spirit bring Jesus to our attention. When we go through hard times, when we struggle, let us see the goal. And that is your son. Help us to truly, as the writer of Hebrews says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.